I appreciate y'all being here on this, y'all, this weather, this afternoon, spot on. It has been lovely. Um, it's been a little wet at the end of the week, um, but uh, uh, nice and cool, breezy. Um, maybe a little bit more sunshine would be nice today if we could keep the temp the same as well. But um, before we open our time together and look at who leads and who serves in the church, let's open up together with a time of prayer. God, I thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to come and dig into your word and what it says about your, about your church. I thank you for the people in this room, for their heart to know you more, for their heart as church, as church members, for their willingness to serve. And so, God, I pray for the time that we have together over the next hour, God, that um, that you would be in um, and among, that you would um, give us wisdom, give us give us discernment, uh, God, give us clarity of mind, and God, speak to us through the words that we are going to look at t- t- tonight. And I pray all these things in your Son's name, um, Amen. So it'd be really easy to say, who leads and serves the church? It's us. All right, see you later. Nice and easy, right? Um, I think a great place to start would be to uh, look at the beginning of the church, of when the church came about. After the death and resurrection of Christ, Jesus had been um, doing his earthly ministry, laying the groundwork for um, his eventual death. It's always interesting to look at his ministry and how each miracle he did got him one step closer to the cross. As he called Lazarus from the tomb, he was getting one step closer to the tomb himself, and he walked towards that um, with us as the joy set before him. And um, as he did that, he poured into the 12 disciples who would become the first apostles who would become the first leaders, the first pastors of the church who would lead and grow the church, who would be a part of the spirit coming down at Pentecost. We see in Acts 2, we see the 12 and others gathered together in a posture of prayer. We see this, this, this core, this kind of remnant of uh, maybe the crowds who had been following after Jesus for several years in a posture of prayer and a posture of waiting for his spirit to come because Jesus had um, ascended. He had left and they were looking up and they were stuck because oftentimes that's what we do when there's a leadership vacuum, right? We stand there and we say, what now? I've been led by Jesus. What do I do now? And that's what the angels even asked them um, after they're staring up into the sky for a while and said, what are you doing here? Did you not hear what he just told you to go and to do? It was to make disciples, but first the Spirit had to come. And so they're in this posture of waiting. They're um, in the upper room. They're waiting on the Spirit to come. And in Acts 2, and um, uh, 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 the story of Pentecost and uh, the Spirit coming after um, this group was in a posture of prayer, in a posture of waiting, ready to receive. We see the church growing by 5,000 on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2 closing out with the now 
much larger group of new believers dedicating themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the breaking of bread, and their numbers are growing day by day. One of the books at the bottom of your notes page, um, written by Matt Smethurst, he, um, in his book, he um, comments that, oh, what a um, optimistic moment it was at Pentecost. Even in Acts chapter 4, this spirit of unity as the church just continued to grow and um, under the leadership of the original 12 disciples, now the apostles leading, they added one to their number to make it 12. But then as the church grows, there's estimates that the church by Acts chapter 6 was um, around 8,000 in number. So the first mega church we see being led by the 12 um, apostles, and um, I'm kind of surprised it took this long to get to a major disagreement, um, uh, a shortfall in the capability of those 12 apostles to um, um, adequately not only teach and shepherd, but also to make sure that the all of the needs of their people were met. All of the shepherding was happening in the most um, efficient way. And we see in Acts chapter 6, if you'll turn there, we're going to be doing a little bit of Bible drill tonight. So hope your fingers are ready. If you get a paper cut, I'm sure we can find a first aid kit. And in Acts chapter 6, we see the um, Hellenists or the Greeks in the church making up the new Believers, uh, in, verse, cha- in uh, verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being n- neglected in the daily distribution. So this was the distribution of the food to the widows. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. That is a big business meeting if you're um, inviting 8,000 people to that meeting. The full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so that's where we see the leadership structure needing to grow from the original 12. We see it starting with the original 12 apostles, but at that point it was straining under the load of the work of the ministry. So we see Jesus empowering his 12 um his 12 disciples, um, who would eventually become the um, apostle leaders of the church, right? In Matthew 10, when he empowers them and sends them out, um, that was kind of the beginning of what would be their leadership there. Acts 2, we see the church being formed and growing exponentially. And now in Acts 6, we're seeing that growth straining and the leadership structure needing to become a little wider, needing to have different roles to still accomplish the work of the ministry. Now, 
let's look at some key terms here because there's going to be a lot of terms that have been thrown out and um, there's also some terms that uh, uh, we as a, as a church are going to um, look at a little differently than maybe a d- denomination of a different name. And so we'll kind of look at those a little closer. The first um, term that I want us to kind of look at here um, that we are going to use inter, um, inter, um, interchangeably because um, as, as, you read the new, as you read the New Testament letters, and, um, and um, epistles, you, you really don't see a ton of differentiation between the people who fill those roles. So the first one is presbyteros, all right? And so that is elder, or um, uh, you see that kind of identifying the, the um, slight advance in age, right? So it's basically saying we, we don't want an immature person to be an elder, to be a pastor, to be an overseer here, right? Need to have some life experience in order to be an, um, an um, effective leader. We actually see that the most in the New Testament when it's talking about kind of this pastor, elder, bishop role. Um, then the next, and um, if you look a little closely there, um, if you like word roots, right, that word kind of looks a little bit like Presbyterian, right? So, so, um, so the way that they have um, taken kind of that word is that it separates into different people. Different people have different um, roles in that. We are going to kind of say that these three, and we're going to draw uh, biblical evidence to to why these three terms can really be one person, not multiple people. The next one is um, episcopos, episcopos or overseer or bishop, right? And so um, kind of looks a little bit like the Episcopal church, right? So we're, we're uh, seeing where these things came from here. So we have overseer or bishop, right? And so in the um, Episcopal church, you've got uh, 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 different um, levels and different um, sizes of overseeing that happen. So, so a uh, bishop would oversee a larger kind of group than maybe the um, under shepherd of a local ch- church. And so um, there's no major differences between the two of those, right? The presbyteros and episcopos, right? There's not a huge difference when you're talking about what they are called to do in the local church. Let's look at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. I'm going to turn there with you. We'll see how we do here. No bookmarks allowed. That would be cheating. I was in Bible drill with our uh, fourth through sixth graders, and some of them are quick with their fingers, I think because they're smaller. So Titus 1, 5 through 9, looking at qualifications for elders. This is why I left you in Crete. This is Paul writing to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or a violent or greedy for gain. 
but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so in verse 5, we see the we see the first usage of the word, so the presbyteros, we see that elder word used. But in verse 7, we see the word episco, um, episcopos used. But he's not drawing a differentiation between what is expected of them, but two different words are used. In Acts 20, Um, And we're not going to turn there, but in Acts 20, chapter 20, verse 17, so the same passage talking about this role, we see presbyteros used in verse 17 of Acts 20, and we see episcopos used in verse 28 of Acts 20. And so we see a lot of interchanging of these words as they are talked about. So as we define them, we can really, on good faith, very much use these terms um, 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 interchangeably. And so if you're more comfortable with pastor, awesome. If you're more comfortable with elder, that's fine. I know sometimes when we hear the word elder, we might think old, but that is not necessarily always part of it, right? That um, it's it's really identifying different natures of the same role. And so um, uh, we want somebody who is a pastor, who is leading in this way to have life experience, right? To not just come in as an, um, as an um, 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 immature person, but we also know that this person would have oversight, would have administration would have administrative duties over church governance, right? Uh, Telling Titus to get things organized before he just leaves this new church. And so um, those are kind of the first two words. There's a third word, um, poemen, which is the pastor-shepherd word. Um, Ephesians 4.11, we kind of see this pastor-teacher combo mentioned as he's talking about the gifts given to the capital C church. So all believers, what gifts are given to all believers? And one of the gifts, right, would be the pastor-teacher role. And so not that all pastors are necessarily the most gifted in teaching, right? All of you have probably heard a pastor who is particularly gifted in teaching, and you've also probably interacted with a pastor who is capable of teaching, but is maybe not the most gifted in teaching. And so while pastors are called to be um, able to teach and need to be able to exercise that gift, they don't necessarily have to be this dynamic, charismatic speaker, although some are. Right, and so that is not necessarily. Um, uh, uh, it it doesn't need to be the highest on the list of strengths. Um, that is reinforced when Paul is writing to Timothy in First Timothy chapter three, verse two, and when he's writing to Titus in chapter one, verse nine. So we see Paul doing a lot of instructing on how to organize the church. Why was Paul giving all of this instruction on how to organize the church? I thought the 12 had it. 
Well, the 12 were aging up. And so Paul was starting to notice that, hey, this next generation of believers that we've been pouring into need to know how to organize and why they need to organize. How do you choose a leader when you've had trusted and faithful leadership for a long time? You have the advantage of not having to think about it. But if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. That's Benjamin Franklin, I think. So um, that's, not, that's, uh, that's not scripture, but it's wise. And so... Um, and so just giving the wise advice to these new, these young leaders to make sure that they're ready to train up that next generation of leaders. And as the church grew, geographically, it was hard for the, for the original group to stay um, connected and to actually oversee the churches that they would be charged with. And so we see even more linking if you go to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. If you'll turn there with me, we'll look at that one. Just getting us comfortable with these three terms kind of being used um, inter, um, inter, um, interchangeably with pastor, elder, bishop. Because I think a lot of our American denominations in particular, when we hear certain words, we think of certain denominations. And so we're trying to get some really good biblical definitions of these words. And so if we look at Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And if you'll turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, I told you we're going to be doing some Bible drills tonight. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you, um, elders in the plural, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd of the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, chief shepherd appears, that's a capital S shepherd, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe, your, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so we see this under-shepherd image being drawn, this lowercase s shepherd term being used to refer to the elders, to the pastors, to the overseers, to the people not only giving administrative oversight, not only giving um, leadership and, and uh, providing the time of teaching, but also sh uh, shepherding the flock as they themselves are shepherded by the great shepherd, the capital S shepherd. So we have under shepherds who are leading a smaller flock while they themselves are being led by the capital S shepherd. So we've got those three terms. We've got presbyteros, 
um, episkopos and poemen, looking at pastor shepherd, looking at um, bishop overseer, and looking at looking at the term elder. All right, and so. The, as the church became more established, it needed more structured leadership because it's easy to be a little disorganized when you start, but if you want to keep something going for a while, you've got to have more structure. And so like we talked about a minute ago, Paul begins to instruct Timothy and Titus and others and some of this next generation of leaders that they've spent time on missionary journeys with and they've spent time shadowing and they've spent time doing the work of the ministry. They are ready to step into that next phase of leadership. And so we're not going to look at all of these passages, but to definitely write them down in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we see Paul instructing Timothy to entrust faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We talked about that role of teaching being fundamental to the role of an elder or a pastor, right? That is one of the main roles, and um, especially as we get into deacons, this role of teaching is, is paramount. And so then we also see in Acts chapter 14, we see Paul and Barnabas appointing pastors and elders for the church at Lystra, Iconium, and um, Antioch before they leave. They don't just start a church and leave a leadership vacuum. If, if uh, you've ever been a part of a church or any sort of um, organization where there is a leadership vacuum and there's not a process in place to fill that then it can be a very uncertain time, especially for the people who are um, a part of that. And these are new Christians, right? These are baby Christians. These are people who need a shepherd. These are sheep in need of a shepherd. So Paul and Barnabas are appointing and pouring into these leaders before they move on to the next place. So that's in Acts chapter 14. We see in Acts chapter 20, we see Paul uh, being able to call the elders of the church together when he circles back to the church in Ephesus. So he's gone there. He's appointed elders. He has poured into them. He has written letters back to them. And then he has returned back, and he has been able to call on the leadership that was put in place because it was a structure. It was healthy. There was teaching. There was oversight happening. In Titus 1, uh, we uh, read that a few minutes ago. We see Paul instructing Titus, don't leave yet until you establish elders. Do not leave until there are pastors shepherding these people. Do not leave them on their own. And so Paul's work is unfinished in a lot of these churches until there is leadership, specifically under the leadership of these pastors, of these elders. And so as different churches grow, like in Acts chapter 6, when we see the church growing, the kind of hub growing in, this, in these early days of the church as they're gathering together, they're eating, they're under the teaching, people keep on coming to know Christ, and the church becomes very large. There's widows that need to be tended to. There's teaching that needs to happen. There's, there is discipleship that needs 
that needs to happen. There's blending of cultures. You've got um, especially the Greeks and the Jews coming together, which is in and of itself uh, just a testament to the power of Christ overcoming these cultural barriers. And again, like I said earlier, I'm kind of surprised it took them 8,000 people before they started to have a major conflict because usually if you get like five or six people in the room uh, for um, a couple of chapters, then you could get some pretty spicy conflict. And so um, you see these cultural barriers causing issues with the Jewish widows were being tended to and the Greek widows were slipping through the cracks. I don't know if any of you have ever been overextended um, before, maybe overcommitted, said yes to too many things, been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. I may be wearing a little bit of it now sometimes, um, where you just feel a little bit of, um, I think I've said yes to too much. And so um, that's what the pastors and um, the elders and the 12 say to the gathered church. They bring the church together. They don't gather in their 12 and come to a solution. They bring the church together to come to a decision about this resolution. I feel like that speaks to the kind of leadership that elders are called to. Um, When we go back to the list of qualifications, that humility, that ability to um, uh, lead people by including people, by empowering those that you are leading is a key characteristic of a pastor. And so they bring the church together, even though it was a large group, and they say, hey, we need to be able to devote ourselves to the teaching. And some of these details are slipping through the cracks But if we spend all of our time attending to these administrative details or the word that they use there is wait on people, right? So basically waiting tables, bringing food to people. If we're spending all of our time waiting tables, then who is going to be doing the teaching? So there were different roles that needed to be filled here, which brings us to some more key terms that I'd like us to look at. And so these refer to deacons because even though we don't see the office of deacon in Acts chapter 6, we mainly see the verb form of deacon. We don't see the noun form of deacon um, very much. We mainly see the verb form of deacon. We see it in the form of ministry, of serving. We kind of have three main ways that we see this word pop up in the New Testament. We have deacon. Diakonos, which is uh, which is kind of the uh, minister servant deacon. This is used as a noun in uh, Philippians one, um, talking about deacons um, in the greeting in 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 Paul's letter. He is addressing the deacons as an as as a role as an office, and so we see that in a noun form, and then we also see it in its noun form in First Timothy three. Right, And so what I want us to take away from that is not that we just had a great time talking about grammar uh, together, but instead that this role of deacon is an active one. It is not an office to be sat in. It is a role to be fulfilled. It It is an action to take. The word we see more often is diakoneo and diakononia, Diaconia, and 
We see it first in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, when we see it used in the context of to serve. And so if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 6, verse 2, it's interesting because in the same couple of sentences, just like we saw elders being used, um, elders and pastors being used um, um, interchangeably, we see different forms of these words being used in a particular way for a particular reason. And so in uh, verse 2 of chapter 6, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve. That's the diakoneo. Uh, in verse 2, so that's to serve or to wait upon. So we don't need to be spending all of our time doing this. We don't need to give up preaching the word to do this. It doesn't mean that the opportunity may not present itself and that pastors aren't ever to serve, right? But we don't need to give up. We don't want pastors and preachers to give up the preaching of the word in order to do those things. That's taking one gift and calling and trading it for another. And so um, so they're saying they do not want to give up this calling for this task. And then we see in verse 3, we'll start there. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And that word ministry there is the diakonia. So that is the, that is the work of the ministry. So for the pastor, the work of the ministry in that context is the preaching of the word, the prayer that they are called to do, the oversight of the church. And so oftentimes it, 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 it would be a lot closer to use the words deacon and minister together versus using pastor and minister together because what, what these original words for deacon, this, this action is pointing to these roles that need to be filled in the church by people who are full of the Spirit, good repute. We're going to talk about the um, uh, uh, requirements for deacon in a, l- in a little bit. And so we have three different forms of deacon that pop up. The primary way that we see it is the verb form. That, that is the action that deacons are called to because we do not want the work of the ministry to fall through, but we also do not want, want to neglect the teaching of the Word so that we are tossed to and fro by any wave of doctrine that might come through because a shepherd protects their flock and they are unable to protect the flock from false doctrine if tasks are undone and they are not able to teach. So we have elders and pastors. There's a need for that for the overall church structure. We need teaching. We need shepherding. We need administrative oversight in the church. But while all that is happening, there are things that need to be done. And the pastors are overseeing that, 
are taking part in some of those things, but also there are, there are wider tasks sometimes that need to be done, and there are tasks that can be done that go into the giftings of other people. So that's where we see the seven chosen from the body. And so we're going to talk more in depth about the role of the church in deacons and um, elders, but this is where we see the body choosing seven people to accomplish these tasks. Again, it's not the elders going into a room and doing some top-down um, um, autocratic leadership style, right? Even though they are overseeing, they are charged with protecting the flock, the church is choosing the people who are doing these roles. And so the story of deacons begins in Acts chapter 6 when the church is in conflict over tasks not being completed, people not being cared for, things slipping through the cracks because the apostles are, are, um, are human. That's not a listed trait of all of the um, of all of the elders, but it's always one to keep in mind is that pastors, elders, overseers, bishops are all human and they will fall short just like all of us do. Jesus died for the sins of pastors in the same way that he died for the sins of any believer. So it starts in Acts chapter 6. We see uh, 1 Timothy 3. If you'll turn there, you'll be reminded of the qualifications for for deacons, just like there are qualifications for um, overseers, immediately following that are qualifications for deacons. And so um, I don't think it's an accident that Paul uh, did those one right after the other because any good church has a leadership structure. And if you go ahead and lay out those qualifications on the front end, that saves you a ton of trouble along the way. And it also links the roles of elders and deacons, not that they are the same, but that they need each other. The deacons are functioning under the leadership and pastoral um, shepherding of the overseers. And the pastors could not do the work of the ministry that they have been called to do without the deacons doing what they are called to do. And so I love that those qualifications are right one on top of the other because we are so quick um, in our flesh, and I'm sure it was happening here as well, to put a hierarchy on, on just about anything. We love a good ranking. We love to be on top. We, uh, we um, immediately start drawing lines of who is, who is really um, in charge here, who's the more important person. Jesus' own disciples were asking him who is going to be on your right hand and your left hand. So it's a natural tendency for us. And so I think Paul is um, guarding our hearts by putting these things one right after the other, linking them and highlighting um, how much they are working together, not working for each other. Um, we also see in Philippians 1 that greeting that Paul is uh, writing to the church at Philippi, uh, referring to elders and deacons in the plural, right? Not, not singular um, in the plural. It takes more than one person to do the work of the, of the 
of the ministry. So we have the qualifications. These are how people are chosen. But once they're chosen, what is their role? What are they to do? Well, for uh, pastors, the task of shepherding, guiding, protecting, teaching, governing the church is described as a noble task in 1 Timothy chapter 3, right before the qualifications. The church is considered incomplete, like we said in Titus 1. Titus don't leave until there are um, elders, because the church is not complete unless there is a pastor to lead it. This care and protect, this, sh- this shepherd image that Jesus uses for himself often while he is doing his earthly ministry is also used in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. Uh, and this care and protecting that comes from the pastors in a huge way comes in their role of teaching this protecting the hearts and minds and looking out for the spiritual welfare of the people under their leadership, protecting them from false doctrines, making sure that uh, pastors are always pointing their people to truth, making sure that they are grounded in the word, making sure that they are growing, making sure that they go from drinking milk to eating solid foods to eating more complex things spiritually so that they are growing in a healthy way. This caring and protecting comes in a large part through the teaching, which is one of the things listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and again reinforced in Titus chapter 1 verse 9, and then again in 2 Timothy chapter 4. So it's not something they just said once and then forgot about it. It's something that is reinforced over and over and over again. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That's a lot of different components of teaching, right? We all love being reproved. It's actually my personal favorite. I'm a, I'm a words of reprove person myself. Just kidding. I'm a words of affirmation person, so please be nice. And so t- teachers are not called to sugarcoat their teaching. They are called to lead and protect their people by speaking truth even when it is Hard. I know I'm thankful for um, sermons like today that tackle hard text. He read it and I said, wow, we're really only talking about that. Let's go. It was great. And so uh, uh, then fourth, we see pastors um, in Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews saying that pastors have to give account for their leadership. This is not leadership that is just being done on the whim of, of a pastor's feelings or um, emotions. And if it is, they will have to give account for that. That's in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Pastors having to stand before God and give account for how they led their people. While it is a noble task, it is not a small task, and it is not one that should be taken lightly. It is a responsibility to be held not only in high regard, by members of a flock, but especially for those considering or wrestling with a call to full-time shepherding. One thing that's interesting, as we hear um, uh, uh, a charge for the church's role 
towards elders and pastors. So um, I'm not talking to a huge group of elders and pastors here. I'm talking to a um, group of members of a local flock, right? And so what is our role as a church? What is the church's role towards pastors and leaders in this overseer role? And I would say first and foremost, First and foremost, in Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, we are encouraged as a church to pray for our pastors, pray for our overseers. Pastors are in no less need of the intercession and prayer and the holding up of their arms than any other believer is because they have to give account for their leadership. In 1 Timothy 5, in 1 Corinthians 9, we uh, see a charge on the church to uh, provide for their pastors. What's interesting in these passages is it, it talks somewhat about providing financially for a pastor who is maybe leading full-time as a vocation, but it also leaves room for a pastor who is not full-time vocationally leading in an elder, pastor, overseer role, that this role, the qualifications of this role does not disqualify people who are working in a different vocation at the same time. And so whether that be bivocational or whether somebody works full-time in a certain vocation and also serves the church as a pastor, as an elder, as an overseer, the church is called to provide for the needs of the pastors to be able to fulfill the work of the ministry. Just like the deacons were uh, put in place so that the pastors could pay attention to the work of the ministry that they had been called to, the needs of the pastors also are um, encouraged to be met through the local church that they are leading so that they can spend most of their time, whether it be their free time outside of their regular vocation or whether it be as a part of their full-time vocation, able to shepherd, able to lead without being too split in their attentions. Um, accountability in James chapter 3 I was telling a group of students this weekend on a retreat that I had an opportunity to lead. If you ever want to just have your toes broken because they get stepped on so much, if you want to have somebody punch you in the face spiritually to take your lunch and eat it and then call your dog names, read the book of James because he does not hold back at all. It is a great book. But pastors are held to a high standard, and that's a part of the calling. The call is not sugar-coated in the book of James. It's, it's not saying that pastors need to be held to unjust or unrealistic standards or accused unjustly of uh, things on a routine basis, but it does say that pastors have surrendered to a noble call and need to be held to an equally high standard by the people who are being led on a regular basis. And so this relationship between pastors and overseers and the people who are leading them is just a really cool picture of the, of the gospel. And so um, the enemy would love to wear out and destroy the ministry of a pastor in a church through unjust 
regular unfiltered accusations, unnecessary complaints. There's a, there's a number put on um, how many uh, complaints um, uh, need to be made before it's brought to a pastor in one passage. And so uh, just being careful about how you bring things to a pastor, how you talk about your overseer, how you talk about the elders who have been appointed to lead a church, because the enemy could cause a lot of damage in a local church body by wearing out, by, by, by discouraging, by distracting a pastor from his calling through the people that he is leading. And then, and then lastly, I don't list these in order of um, importance. I uh, list these in order of, uh, I want to make sure that we hear them all um, equally. This, uh, this fifth role of the church as the church relates to pastors, elders, overseers is to obey and to submit to the leadership and to encourage others to do the same. And uh, we see that in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, right before we're told that pastors need to be prayed for and held to and, and will be held to, um, to, um, to account for their, for their leadership. And again, I, I put it last, not because the um, obey and submit is the least um, important, but I want to make sure that we don't read that command as a call to blindly follow an unfaithful dictatorship. That is not what the call to obey and submit to the leader of, to the leadership of a pastor of an elder is, but rather it is a call to interact with your pastors, to interact with other people in the body in a healthy way as we all seek to move towards the same gospel-centered goal. When we interact with our pastors, we want to make it clear that following their leadership as, as under-shepherds doesn't mean that we follow blindly, but it also doesn't mean that there's undermining, that there is unwholesome talk behind closed doors. There's gossiping, all, all of these things that we're called to not do towards anyone, right? We're also called to not do towards the leadership of a pastor, of an overseer, of a lowercase c church. And so um, we see these roles of pastors, of elders being so important, and we see the role of the church as they follow and submit to the leadership of a pastor also being so um, important and discussed as often, if not more, than the actual roles and qualifications of pastors. And so that's kind of the, um, that's kind of the leadership structure. Then we have the serving structure, this verb, this action that the church needs to do. The church is, is constantly in motion. We are moving. We are pointed towards the goal of making, making disciples, baptizing them, making sure the world hears the truth of the gospel. And as we make it known, we continue to grow and continue to meet the needs in our local 
church, our lowercase c church under the leadership of the under shepherds, lowercase s shepherds. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we have a long list of uh, qualifications of deacons starting in verse 8. And while we won't read all of those qualifications right now, what I do want to focus on is the theme of those, of those qualifications. And that instead of tasks that deacons need to perform, which honestly, that would have been a whole other t- testament if you started writing out all of the tasks that deacons could do. Instead, it focuses on the character qualities of a deacon. It focuses on who should be a deacon. And I feel like that also gives us a glimpse into the heart of the Father. We're reminded all throughout Scripture that God looks at the heart and the character over the gifting and the personality or the physical traits. We see a lot of character qualities. A summary of these qualities is that deacons must exercise self-control towards potential sin sin patterns that are common to all people, not just the church, like gossip and drunkenness and and greed. But even though deacons in their primary role are servants, does not mean that part of their serving role will not include pouring into and not in the same way that pastors teach, but needing to be able to be doctrinally sound and explain the truth of the gospel well in the course of their service, in the course of serving the body in different roles. I kind of like to think of it more like looking at the corporate teaching versus a lot of the roles that many of you in this room fill in the discipleship and the teaching kind of in a more Sunday school atmosphere in more personal one-on-one discipleship, uh, pouring into those people, maybe not in a corporate teaching way, but teaching kind of a lowercase t teaching. And so making sure that not only are the character qualities solid, but also the doctrine is sound. So sound in doctrine and sound in character. We really don't really see a biblical model or evidence or um, implication for a deacon office or offices that serve the elders slash pastors slash overseers as chaperones or as a board of directors. We don't see deacons in scripture standing over the pastor, making sure that the pastor is executing the vision of the church. Instead, we see the pastor casting a vision and leading the church, shepherding the people, and the deacons coming alongside and serving alongside the pastor in that role. We do see a model of serving, meeting tangible needs under the leadership of pastors, overseers, and elders. So tasks that might define deaconing. That's not a a verb that shows up in scripture. I'm just going to say it. Deaconing as a verb here, deacon already is a verb, but meeting tangible needs like in Acts chapter 6. The widows, the Greek widows in particular, were not 
having their needs met in the same way that other widows in the group were. The deacons were chosen, the seven were chosen out of the body, by the body, to meet those needs. So meeting tangible needs, promoting unity, again in Acts chapter 6, kind of a shock absorber to the pastors. If you've ever driven in a car where the shock absorber was not where it needed to be. I know in New Orleans, I put a lot of shock absorbers to the test, uh, 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 almost getting lost in a couple of potholes. And so if you don't have a good shock absorber, you know very, very quickly. My ability to focus and be a good driver when my shock absorbers were not functioning correctly was was damaged in the same way that when a deacon is not functioning in the way that a deacon should function, the pastors are the ones who end up taking their mind off of driving the car here. So we have meeting tangible needs. We have promoting unity, right? Oftentimes, uh, pastors are not maybe the first ones who are approached with an issue or a problem um, uh, because um, either uh, vocationally, maybe paths don't cross, or maybe um, in our flesh, we like to talk about it with other people first, um, hopefully as like a uh, Christ-focused sounding board, not as a gossiping opportunity, right? Um, But um, a lot of times, deacons hear about these things first and are able to absorb the shock of that and help to promote unity. We're humans. We, we, we get our feelings hurt. We misunderstand things. Stuff happens. And so deacons, are, uh, 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 they have a great opportunity to serve as shock absorbers to the, to the pastors. Uh, and then just generally supporting the ministry of the pastors. We see it in 1 Timothy 3, um, immediately after he discusses elders and (coughs) pastors, we see this general supportive role. Um, If you've ever uh, read uh, a job description that's very um, expansive, and then right there at the bottom, there's a really great line, and it says, uh, all other duties as assigned. That's kind of that all other duties. It's whatever pops up that the church needs The deacons are there, like Taylor mentioned this morning. The deacons are there not necessarily to to, to do it, but to make sure it gets done. And so to think of them as only servants and not leaders would be an incorrect look at it. While the pastors are leaders, the deacons are also leaders. They're leading through their servant roles, through their active serving of the church. And what is the church's role as it relates to deacons. Well, naturally, these people are coming from the body, right? So the church is choosing those deacons. We just uh, kind of had that process (coughs) play out with our deacons who um, uh, uh, were either chosen to come back on and serve as deacons or uh, the three men who were uh, 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 prayed over and commissioned today to serve as deacons were chosen and voted on by the church. The church had an opportunity, has an opportunity on a regular basis to vet who is serving our church, who is in the body serving and supporting the ministry of the pastors, going along, co-laboring with the pastors (coughs) as they love the church. And so what I love about this is that 
in no place do you really see a lot of friction between pastors and deacons. There may be some friction that pops up <coughs> pre-deacons to between the pastors and the church, but this deacon-pastor role is, a, is an amazing picture of the body of Christ using its giftedness to love each other well. And when we love each other well, we give the world a glimpse of what the Father's love looks like for us. Jesus tells his disciples that, that they will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. And when we're loving one another well, when, when, when the pastors, when the elders are, are functioning in the way that they should function and teaching and shepherding well and overseeing the administrative needs of the church, when the deacons are serving the people in the church well and supporting the ministry that the pastors are doing and doing the work of the ministry that needs to be done, the world sees an accurate picture of what the church should be. And when we give people a glimpse into eternity, why wouldn't they want to be drawn into that kind of a family? And honestly, even as followers of Jesus, we need those glimpses into eternity. Each time we're loving each other, each time we're serving each other, each time we're laying our comforts down, each time we are uh, resolving a conflict in a Christ-centered way, we are dying to ourselves. we are getting a glimpse of an eternal future where we're loving each other perfectly. And you get enough glimpses of um, eternity, it's a lot easier to have that eternal focus, that eternal mindset. And while the things of this world pass away, the things of the Spirit are forever. And so while faith, hope, and love abide, the greatest of these is love. Because love is eternal. Love is what waits for us in eternity. And these roles are structured and created in a way not to make things complicated, not to create a hierarchy, but instead to make sure that the church is being loved and loving well. And so hopefully this has been helpful. If you'd love to read more, there are some resources at the bottom that I really um, enjoyed getting to read. And so really you could spend hours and hours and hours on this, um, I know I did. And so um, you um, will have an absolute blast reading any of those books. I will say uh, the Wayne Grudem Systematic Theology, just make sure that you uh, carve out about a year to read the whole thing. Um, and so it's uh, pretty hefty. So um, all of those other ones are a nice, quick, um, easy read. So I um, appreciate y'all coming tonight. Um, and uh, 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 getting to journey through what Scripture says about elders and pastors and deacons. So appreciate y'all. Let me pray for us, and then y'all will be d d d dismissed. Lord, I thank you for your leadership um, in our lives. We thank you for the way that you loved us sacrificially. We thank you uh, for your model of love that we can um, uh, uh, base our work of ministry on. I thank you that you have given us the gift of the local church. And I thank you for the gift of d d d diving in deep together as we look at your bride and as we look at how you have structured the church. 
And so, God, I pray for us that we would deepen in our love, not only for the church at large, but also for um, each other. That our love for not only our leaders, not only our um, servant leaders, but also those on the edge, those, those on the fringe. God, that we as a church would be known as a church that loves others well. And so, God, as we um, seek to uh, uh, be a good witness to a world, I pray that that love would be evident in all that we do. And so, God, I pray that over this group of believers here, we pray all these things in your son's name. Um, Amen.